We, over the next six weeks, we're going to spend some time focusing on our three core values as a church. The reason that we identify these three core values is that we just want to focus and simplify. What are we about as a church? And we identified these three things, pursue God, build community, grow people. And what it enables us to do is that it, as I said, it keeps us focused, but it also ensures that not everyone is always doing everything. Lots of you will be involved in different ministries and different, the different things we do, even the different events we do, they have different foci. And so uh, the way that we picture it is like a triangle. We kind of picture these values on a triangle. And whereas as a whole church, I think the triangle kind of looks like this if in a moment. There we go. Um, if you imagine that as an arrowhead and the sharp end there is the pursue God, you can kind of swivel that uh, for each ministry. Like to some extent, we'll all, always do all of those things, but we also want to allow different ministries to focus. So there are some ministries that'll focus more on the building community part, and some things will focus more on the grow people part, which is about discipleship and growing together and so forth. And, and then there are some things that we do, like worship nights or prayer or so, far, so forth, that focus on the pursue God part. And so um, that's, it's, it's been really useful, actually, to identify these and work with these, because it just means that, yeah, we're not always doing, trying to do everything all the time. Today, though, I'm going to focus on, uh, as, as we did last week, going to focus on the first of these values, the pursue God part. This is, this is the part, I think, that is a struggle for a lot of people because it's so, it's, it feels so intangible. It's difficult. Um, a, a lot of people are left with this feeling like um, kind of my, I'm getting on with my life over here and I'm very conscious that maybe I should be doing more um, maybe spiritual things or that my life isn't quite aligned and and then it's like God's over here and he's doing his thing and it's like, there's like this spatial difference. And it's important that we recognise that when we when we speak about pursuing God, we're, we're not, we're, that isn't about closing a spatial difference. It's actually about closing a relational distance. But even that needs to be understood properly. And there's a couple of really basic points that I want to make tonight that I think may help to solve, like be real keys to helping you solve what I think is an experiential dilemma or the dilemma of your perceived lack of experience of God in your life. This, for me, has been absolutely massive, these two things, and yet they're so, so simple. I'm going to talk about, first of all, I'm going to talk about God tonight. I'm going to talk about the being and the nature of God. Now, you'd think we all sort of get this, and maybe this is why we don't talk a lot about, well, God, you know, we kind of, that's what church is all about. It's kind of about God, and we all think we know about God when actually there's some real basics here that we get wrong. And when we get these wrong, it throws out everything else. And it has us living in this dilemma like, oh, I'm just here and I'm getting on with my life and, and I sort of dip in and do kind of spiritual things and maybe pray a bit, you know, and, and rock to church, rock up to church and maybe worship and then I get back to my life and, and, and the two feel disconnected and, and oftentimes we, we, we just feel like our real lives don't really connect with God. We see the two as being, you know, quite separate. And what I want to say to you tonight is that is founded on an absolute lie, one of the greatest delusions, I think, that knocks people's faith uh, in, and, and just makes, really brings a kind of spiritual paralysis. Now I want to speak to that tonight. Now, 
I have actually, there's, so I'm going to talk about a couple of basic things about God and I'm going to take this, um, I guess, and, and impart a sense of, I think, what God really wants as he's drawing you. Um, to, uh, well, I'll, I'll, make, I'll make that clear tonight. I'm saying this so that I actually remember what to do uh, as well. I have, this is, this is tonight, there's a, there's a lot of repetition in tonight. So you would have heard me talk about these things before, but I think these things are so important um, and, and they're, they're, so ex, um, they're so important for our experience that I'm happy to repeat this uh, regularly, even at the risk of you getting a bit sick of me talking about this. We have this tendency to view God in what one theologian refers to as Monopolytheism, uh, 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 it's a great uh, way of referring to this tendency. So this is actually the, the, the first kind of delusion uh, about God. This is the real God delusion. You know, uh, Richard Dawkins wrote this uh, book uh, called The God Delusion. And the God that he describes that, that, that he doesn't believe in is not the God that I even believe in. It's a complete straw man argument. That book is subsequent. Um, a lot of subsequent theology and philosophy is explained. So the book's kind of kind of embarrassing because it's one big exercise in straw man argument. But that's um, that's a, you get that for free tonight. Um, so don't worry about reading the book. But there is a God delusion. I think the God delusion is uh, described by uh, there's a um, theologian that describes this, as I said, as um, monopolytheism. And what he means by this is that it's. You know, polytheism is the belief in many gods, like the Greek gods. You know, they had all these different gods, like uh, you know Zeus and Hermes and Apollo and and a whole network uh, of gods. And they're all kind of these beings. That these they're very much they're they're kind of finite beings, kind of floating around in the sky somewhere, and they all live up on Mount Olympus, and they get together and they argue with each other. And and what what we seem to have done is. To create monotheism in the in the sort of um, kind of modern imagination, I think, because there's always this drift. What we've done is that we've got rid of the poly bit, all the all the multiplicity of gods, and we've just focused on one. But we still think of him as like the bearded guy in the sky. And I don't know. There's there's a there's a drift that we. Have. I think it's because as broken people who were made to reflect the image of God because we're broken, we naturally reflect a skewed image of God. It's, it's kind of a, a natural, we have this natural drift. Um, speaking of the, the bearded guy uh, in the sky, you might be familiar with this uh, image. This is a painting by Michelangelo and it's on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel uh, in Rome. Anyone ever been to the Sistine uh, Chapel in Rome? Few of you have. Uh, right along the uh, along the, the the ceiling are these Old Testament uh, images from Genesis, like pretty much the creation right through to the fall and the flood, which is really weird, because uh, that wasn't a customary thing to put on the ceiling of a church. It's basically one massive judgment scene. Michelangelo had some problems with the church at the time, so he thought he'd put a massive judgment scene <laughs> up on the roof of the Pope's chapel, you know, looking down. Um, anyway, that's. That's another topic, and you get that for free as well. But um, anyway, so this uh, the, the, the weird thing about this image is is you wonder how Michelangelo thinks he can get away with 
depicting God when the second commandment says, and I quote, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or in earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. So do, in other words, do not try to depict God. Why? Because God is far greater than anything tangible. God is far too great for that. Do not reduce God down and make God smaller. In the un- and, and that commandment is given in the light of the human tendency to do exactly that, to make a smaller God. And we see throughout history from Old Testament times uh, right through, I think, to today, we have this tendency to do it. Let's go back to, oh, there, there's the image. Anyway, so the thing about this depiction of God is, and this is how I think Michelangelo thinks that he can get away with this, that actually, well, who he's painted there, that's Zeus. He's depicted God in the uh, customary way in which Zeus was uh, always portrayed, uh, complete with the, uh, you know, um, the, the, the Greek uh, garb, the Greek robe and everything. And I think he thinks, well, if I depict God as Zeus, then Zeus kind of symbolises God, which they sort of, uh, this is how he thinks he can get, get. So I'm not depicting God directly. I'm painting Zeus and Zeus kind of stands for God. Okay, look, great try, uh, Michelangelo. It's a beautiful painting, uh, I agree. But this is, unfortunately, this is kind of the way that we can tend to think of God as a being sort of up there in the sky. Um, And and then as time goes on, you know, when you get to the the scientific revolution and Newtonian science and um, Newton portrays the universe as like this big machine suddenly. I mean, uh, previously... The universe was depicted in in a much more sort of spiritual sense. There was no differentiation between the spiritual and the physical. The physical was spiritual, and the spiritual was physical, and and uh, there was no division between the supernatural and the natural. This actually begins during the so-called Enlightenment uh, period, as I've said before. It's the biggest piece of um, self-congratulatory hyperbole that ever existed. The Enlightenment, please, uh, because actually what what you know, what they did, I think, is, is suck any sense, of, um, uh, any sense of the spiritual out of reality, really, and create a completely flat reality. So um, kind of endarkenment, if anything. I don't think that's a word. Uh, so what you get is this, this universe that's this big machine. And I, we actually, this is, it's pr- quite possible. You, we all actually probably still think like this. Uh, the universe is a big, it sort of works on its own. You know, it's like a machine and it just kind of works, right? And God builds the machine. He's the creator, so he builds the machine and then he steps back and he sort of watches the machine and maybe watches us wreck the machine. And every now and again, he steps in. This is the interventionist God. He steps in, you know, um, with his big beard and, you know, and he comes in and he'll fix things up when we want, you know, uh, and when we ask and when things get broken, then he'll step back out. And, and you know, we, and, and so this is where you get this idea of the supernatural intervention in the natural world. All of that's completely non-biblical, by the way. Uh, there's no, in fact, there's the, the, the word in, um, even in the Gospels when it describes miracle, there's actually no equivalent to the word miracle in the Bible. It's just a works of power. That's the way that they're described because they didn't make this distinction between the natural and the supernatural. Because according to the Bible, let me get on to the biblical uh, view. And this is, here's why this is uh, important. According to the Bible, 
God not only created, but he, he constantly sustains and upholds the universe. In, in, in the words of the Westminster Confession of Faith, God is the fountain of all being. So all of life, all of being itself, including the life that animates our body, including your consciousness, is a perpetual gift of God, is even a participation in something that comes from God. Now, and, and what that means is, is that God is... Everywhere, all the time, we talk about the omnipresence of God. We are literally immersed in the presence of God all the time. And he is even at work within us all the time. This is, this is really important because our tendency is to not allow ourselves to recognise that unless we have some big experience. And when I often, if, if people feel like, uh, fall into this thing of feeling like God's not here, where is God, and I can't seem to find God. Whenever I ask the question, well, what is it that you're actually looking for? When you really probe that, what is it that you're actually looking for? And let me ask that question for you. If, if that's you, if you've just felt really um, uh, maybe disillusioned or, or uh, discouraged because you can't seem to find God anywhere, let me ask you the question, what is it that you're looking for? And invariably, what we're looking for is something that is tangible enough so that we can say, oh, I've had an experience, there was God, right? But see, God is not a tangible something. The truth is we are all experiencing God all the time. I've said this before, it's really important that we learn to acknowledge this. This has been life-changing for me because it means that I stop, for goodness sake, stop chasing after big experiences all the time. It was like if I didn't have the big experience, then, oh, gee, God didn't turn up today, you know. Or if it wasn't some big emotional thing or some, you know, if I didn't cry or if I don't know, whatever, whatever it is that you're looking for, then, you know, I didn't really experience God today. You know, God didn't turn up today. Now, all of this, this sort of, language. It's, in a way, it's fine. I mean, James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. All of that, you know, that spatial language is, is important because it's talking about relational dynamics, but we don't, we shouldn't allow it to make us think that God is like a finite being that's somewhere else that just comes in and turns up if we pray hard enough or if we're focused enough or if we're good enough. And then bang, God turns up like Zeus coming out of the sky. And, and there he is. No, no. Please understand, right now, you are experiencing God in the most fundamental and powerful way right now. The very being that animates, the life that animates your body. The consciousness that allows you to be aware of what is going on in this room. That is a perpetual gift and outflow of the power of God. There is more divine activity in you, animating you and around you and guiding you and speaking to you. It's so much and it's so constant, that's exactly why we don't recognise it. Because it's so constant, like the fish that says, where is this ocean? They talk about the ocean all the time. I don't see any ocean, where is it? Show me the ocean, like show me, is that the ocean? Is that it? Is that the ocean? 
No, no, the ocean is all around you. You are immersed in the ocean. The ocean is even in you and outside of you and around you. Now, at the same time, we shouldn't, and again, we, because we do tend to reduce God, we can then reduce God to an impersonal force that pervades all things. That's also equally problematic. No, God is personal. But we are literally immersed in his presence all the time. This has been so important because I can begin with this. It means that a sense of the presence of God is not something that I have to attain through effort and praying and like if I hype myself up enough, you know, and have some experience or then I can feel like I've got to God or God has come down to, no, no, it's something I can begin with. It's something that I can in quiet moments acknowledge, Lord, you, you are present. I'm immersed in your presence. And yes, of course, there's a sense in which God moves and, and, and there's a sense in, in, in which uh, relationally we grow closer to God and, and all of these sorts of things. That's all fine, right? But we have to begin with an acknowledgement that God is everywhere all the time. Where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee from your spirit? If I go up to the heavens, the psalmist says, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. You hem me in behind and before. You are hemmed in by God. Immerse right now. Experiencing God right now. You're in the midst of the biggest miracle that there ever was. That's the first thing. And that's amazing. The second thing that I often got uh, tripped up by, and, and these sort of these two things kind of went together because I, I can't believe that I that for so long I got this wrong. <laughs> this is the basics. You know, I think well beyond. I, you know, I had a Bachelor of Theology and I mean I studied Hebrew and Greek and I still like was just wrong about God. Like, you know, I mean, just in my imagination, I had this very reduced idea of God. I just cannot believe that I got that so wrong for so long. Um idiot. Anyway, um, the other thing that went alongside of that that I, that I got wrong was this constant sense that, no, oh, I don't think God's, um, you know, particularly if I feel like I'm not really experiencing God, oh, it's probably because God is not. He doesn't really love me as much as, well, the other people that are out there having big experiences. Because um, when I came to church, everyone was talking about having big experiences of God, and I didn't notice that. But I used to think, I'm not having these big experiences. Like, what's wrong with me? And I just assumed, well, that must mean that God really loves them, but not so much me. And here's the other thing, the other very basic thing uh, about God and about the love of God. God doesn't fall in love with people. The reason that he loves you or anyone is not because he sees that person and thinks, oh my, that person is amazing, right? 
It's like God, it's not like God just kind of falls in, because we think of love and, and, and we think more about attraction and desire. And, and so I think we think that God's love is a kind of attraction. to He sees out the, the attributes and the achievements of a certain person. Oh, now, now, it's true, God will be pleased with someone because of, uh, because of certain things. Uh, I mean, there are a whole lot of terrible things that could off-weigh that, and that's, but that's another, that's another story. But we, I, I think we tend to think that, well, God loves those people because of those things, but not so much me, right? And there again, here's a, here's a, we've got something really wrong about God. This is, this is uh, what uh, John says in his letter in John uh, 4, verse 16. He says, and so we know and rely on, there's a sense of rely on, like I'm, to rely on something is just to be completely embedded and at rest in that truth, Right? And so we know and we rely on the love that God has for us. And then he says this, three of the, these are some of the most important words in the Bible. Three words, God is love. It doesn't just say God is loving. He says God is love. That means that the reason that God loves anyone is not because they're so good. It's not because... God just suddenly felt really attracted to that person and thinks, oh, I would love that person to be my child because they're just so amazing. No, God is love. God loves because he is love. Now, those of us who are parents know that we don't love our children because we look at them, we think, oh, gee, they've achieved so much and we, we look at their attributes and maybe they're really cute, you know, and or, or, I don't know. We don't, that's not why we love our children. We don't love our children based on the sum of their attributes and achievements. Now, if that's the case with us as people, how much more with God? God loves because he is love and because we are his children. So it's not God doesn't love this person, you know, and, but not so much that person based on you. It's not based in you at all. God's love is based in who God is. He loves you because he is God. And to not believe that God loves you is to not believe that God is. Because love is what theologians describe as an essential attribute of God. It's not something that comes and goes. It is essential to who God is. Not only that, but God has shown us how much he loves us, that when we were separated from him, when we rebelled against God, he came to us in Jesus Christ, in his love, he came to us in Jesus Christ and suffered and died on a cross to pay the penalty for our guilt so that we could be reconciled, forgiven and reconciled. That's how, it's like doubly true that God loves you based on that. So, these two things, I, it's, it, it makes it, it should make it impossible for you to doubt that God is with you. And not only that, but God is present with you in his love. That he is disposed towards you completely in his love. Now, different people respond to this in different ways, right? We are all immersed in God. And because God is personal, a person, that means there is a... Um, a there's a sense of a flow of God's being through all things. Like he's, God has a will, desires, a purpose, right? So now we can, if you imagine God's, as I uh, tend to like to picture it, God's presence is, being immersed in God's presence is not like being immersed in something static, but like being immersed in a, 
mighty powerful river that's flowing, right? Now, there are two ways that you can live. You can either flow with the river or you can fight against it. Everyone's immersed in the presence of God. And, and God is gently pushing people, putting, but some people fight it and go against God and some people surrender and go with God. That's the choice that we have. But God is always drawing you deeper into himself, into his love and his presence, and he wants you to know. It's, it's just a matter of being, receiving that, being conscious of that. Make that your starting point, okay? So next time you have a quiet moment, you put some time aside to pray, acknowledge God is with me. He is present. He is here, and he loves me. The reason why I love that is because it's not this intermittent thing. It's not just this experience that I have in real spiritual times. No, I can be driving along in the car. I can be in the most random thing in the supermarket. It's like God is present and he loves me. I'm immersed in the presence of God. Constant, constant, constant. It's not a big experience. It's a constant experience. Well, it is a big because it's a constant big experience. Finally, in the last five minutes that I have, I want to describe to you what it is that God wants from us. What is it that God wants from us? And I'm going to describe it uh, like this. Let me... Uh, let me put a question to you, just because I want to beg the question here. Take... Prayer, for example. Um, when we pray, what is, let's say you're praying for something and, you know, there's something that you need to see or something you want, whatever it is, it's you're praying for something, okay, which is fine. We should, if we have concerns or things that we need in our life, we should pray for those things. But what is the goal? It's very important that we're clear on what the goal is because there's a bigger goal that God has for us when we pray. Now, we might think the goal when you pray, it makes sense to think the goal is that you get the thing that you're praying for, right? That makes sense that that's kind of the goal. Right? If I'm praying for, Lord, would you do this? I really want this. Can you please do this, Lord? You know, then the goal would be, well, you would just do that, right? That would be, the, that's not the goal for God. <laughs> this is another area where, where we get, and, and where even, again, people can get very disillusioned when their prayers aren't answered or so forth because they lose actually a sense of what actually is the goal of prayer. It's not actually for you to get what you want. It's for God to get you. And this is what I mean by that. I'm gonna use the word, I'm gonna teach you uh, a good word what God wants and the goal that God is drawing you towards, I'm going to describe using the word confluence. The word confluence. Now, let me describe confluence. Confluence, because I'm you know, using the illustration of river, it's, it's used of rivers, actually. When, when two rivers converge, right, and they become one big river, uh, or when a creek uh, flows into a river and there's the creek disappears because it's become one with the river. That's confluence. And this is, this is actually what God wants. He wants you 
in a spiritual sense, because we are, we're not just physical, we are, we are spiritual beings. He wants you spiritually to become one with him. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. John 14, 20, Jesus says, on that day you will realize that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. Confluence to becoming one. And then in Ephesians chapter six, Paul talks about praying in the spirit on all occasions. So even when we pray, the goal is to bring all of our dependence, right? All of our needs Someone asked me once, you know, so what, I could pray for anything. I said, yeah, you can pray for anything. They said, anything? Yes, you can pray for anything. They said, you know, oh, well, what about if I pray for a you know, Lamborghini? Um, I said, if you really want a Lamborghini, you should take that to God, that desire. You really should. If that's, if that's really what you want, in, please do take that to God and just see what he says about that, right? Because often God is more interested in actually changing what you desire so that there is confluence between your desires and his desires so that your desires become one with his desires, right? He's gonna draw your heart, your desiring into his desiring so there is confluence. So the two become one, otherwise your desiring grates against reality. Otherwise, you're chasing after things that really don't matter. And that's a problem because it puts you in contradiction with reality, with what you're made for. Jesus said, you know, even uh, on, on the night before, on the night of his suffering, he says, not, your, not my will, Lord, but your will be done. He's demonstrating confluence, right? He's, you know, the, the, the humanness and, and the desire even to uh, not go through what he had to go through, he was willing to surrender that completely so that his will would become one with God's will. This is what confluence is. It is becoming one so that our desires become one with God's desires and the two flow together in harmony. And that, the word for that is peace, peace. When your desires are in harmony with God's desires, it's like two notes in harmony that become indistinguishable or three notes in a three note chord. Actually, no, just go, let's go two notes because that messes up my, uh, I was just trying to work with music theory. Anyway, uh, like two notes in harmony, right? Like when you hear two notes in harmony, it becomes the one beautiful sound. It's a beautiful sound. And the beautiful sound that God wants is your desires in harmony with His. Confluence. Now this means, this involves, and this is the bit, this is the hard bit. Let, let, let me finish with the hard bit, just in case you're feeling a bit happy or something tonight. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to end with the hard bit. I just want to be realistic, you know, because the thing is, I'm describing something here that a very big part of you doesn't want. Like there, there's a lot about you that like you've constructed together a sort of a, 
uh, an ego, like kind of alter, if to use a Freudian term, sort of alter ego. Uh, you've constructed that together and you're holding on to this thing, right? And, and when, when you flow, and I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine a creek flowing to this river, right? And it becomes one with the river. The creek disappears. Not, you, you don't lose your individual, you don't lose your individuality. In fact, in some sense, you gain that. Uh, but you become so much one with God that independent autonomous identity is just dissolved, right? It's com it completely dissolves into God. And I think we're afraid of that. This is when I, when I really, when I really sensed this and I, and, I, and I was reading a whole lot of scriptures that were making me realize, oh, this is what God really wants. I started to feel nervous. I started to become conscious that there were a whole lot of things that I was holding on to kind of identity that was just gonna be completely dissolved, wonderfully dissolved. It's just that I was kind of afraid of that because that's a level of self-surrender that deep down we don't really want to give up that much. But in another sense, deep down, that is the fulfillment of your deepest desires. Let's go back to the picture. If I can just push the analogy just a little bit more. What I, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna say this of myself so that you don't feel insulted. I feel like that creek flowing to that river. I've seen that a little bit more like a, well, a sewer. <laughs> a sewer full of all this solid stuff that's built up in my life. And when God takes a hold of my life and he pours his spirit into my heart, it's like he flows through my heart and he picks up all of that gunk and he wants to pick all of that and flow that up, flow, allow that to flow into the river. I've seen, you've probably seen uh, pictures of like, you know, putrid sewers sort of flowing into a river. Well, uh, you need to understand that when we flow, when, we, when all of that flows into God, the river of God purifies all of that. He purifies all of that. He dissolves, all of the impurities are dissolved when we become one with God. And all of the work of God in our hearts is to loosen all of that up. It's like all of this gunk, all this channel full of all this gunk. And then the water starts flowing. I want you to picture this. The water starts flowing. It picks up all of the rubbish and the mud and the gunk and it picks it all up and it kind of start, it starts oozing. I'm really being graphic now. It kind of starts oozing. And maybe you feel like spiritually, you're just an oozing mess, right? You're kind of, there's a bit of spiritual movement, but it just feels like a really complex you know, ooze of just brokenness. And, and, and that's sometimes we think, oh, this is too, you know. I, but this is what, the, the, what God is doing is that He is loosening all of that stuff so it, all the brokenness, all the gunk, it all flows into Him and is dissolved in that moment of confluence. Does that make sense? It's a beautiful picture, I've seen this. As I, it, it, it encourages me when I, when I feel all the gunk in my life. It encourages me that 
Actually, God is moving that gunk. God is making me conscious of all of that gunk. The reason why I'm becoming more conscious of it is that he's picking it up by his spirit and he's moving it along, right? And I'm getting shocked. Oh man, there's a lot of gunk here. But he's picking up and he's gonna, he's gonna, cause, he's gonna cause confluence. That's, are you, I wonder if you are willing for that to happen. If you're willing for God to pick up everything in your life and for you to become one with him? Are you willing to give up everything? Jesus said, whoever does not give up all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is what he meant. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, Paul said. Complete surrender. It's all or nothing. But you don't have to start with everything. You get to take this one small bit at a time, one little bit loose at a time. You just got to keep going, but understand the goal, understand the bigger picture. So let's stand. I'm going to get the music team to come along. I, as, as, I, as we close tonight, the, the, here's, what, here's what I want us to do. Let's acknowledge the presence of God. We are immersed in God's presence. Let's acknowledge not only God's presence, but God's love for every single person in this room. And then let's acknowledge that because He loves you, He's drawing you into Himself and everything that's false is gonna dissolve and you're gonna become one with God. That's the goal. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You are so good And tonight, Lord God, we acknowledge your presence. We acknowledge your presence. You are present within us, around us. You are moving, upholding, creating. In every cell of our bodies, Lord, you are at work. Lord, we are immersed, we are immersed in your presence. And we acknowledge, Lord, that you are present with us in your love. You surround us in your love. You embrace us in your love. And tonight, Father, we commit ourselves to you, Lord God. Father, to let go of all that is false in ourselves, all the gunk, Lord, we let go of it, Lord. Father, that it would all flow and be dissolved in Your presence, Lord. We give ourselves completely, Lord, because that's what You want, that's what You paid for. We surrender completely to You, Lord. And here we find our rest. Here we find our rest. Here we find our peace in perfect oneness, in harmony with you. Draw us into this more and more each day.